0: okay we are live hi this is william ramsey welcome to the d hypno program this will be episode eight i've titled this one dr alan w shefflin the mind controllers and charles manson the reason for the title is i'm going to read from alan w shefflin's book the mind controllers and the intro and then a section that he had on charles manson Fortunately, mr or dr shefflin passed away last year 2023 And there's a very pleasant, wonderful memorialization of his life by Stephen Hassan on Stephen Hassan's website, freedomofmind.com. So I'll put a link to that. I'm going to read from that on the intro. And then a little bit about Alan, his uh, CV. He used to work at Santa Clara as a law professor. And also, like I said, a little piece of Mind Controllers published in 1978. Still important. It's very uh, weighty tome, I should say, 500 pages, different subjects, but I'll get to that. But uh, he passed away at age 81, 2023. So this is Steve Asan. It is with great sadness that I bid farewell to my dear friend, colleague, and mentor, Alan Sheflin, who passed away last week at the age of 81. Alan was a law professor emeritus at Santa Clara University. As a forensic expert, he had a master's in psychology and counseling and was a world authority on hypnosis. He had been president of the International Cultic Studies Association and later on was on the board of directors. I first connected with him in 1978 when I read his book, The Mind of Manipulators, came out. He lived in San Francisco and taught at Santa Clara Law School at the time. I wrote to him and we became friends. Alan was a deeply analytical person, a progressive who wanted to help people. He was deeply invested in the notion that wrongdoing should be held up to the light and that people should be held accountable. He was also a master at analyzing things, an absolutely brilliant and amazing man. One of his most important contributions was the creation of a social influence model. For those not familiar with it, I'm including a link to an explanation of it below. His model is exceptionally important to any attorney or anyone interested in the legal field or legal activism. My friend Matthew Bywater, who's working to create freedom of mind as an international human right, asked me, When did you first hear the term freedom of mind? And I didn't remember. But he pointed out that Alan wrote an article about human rights using those very words. So it's very possible that the origin of the use of the term freedom of mind comes from my dear friend, Alan. Alan was funny. He had a love of movies, music, and particularly jazz. And he kept up with politics. And many, many times when I was getting harassed or under threats of lawsuits, he coached me pro bono, advising me and teaching me. He was a great supporter of my work and the work of anyone who was trying to shed light on the issue of undue influence, brainwashing, mind control, thought control, or any type of unethical control. Alan and I were working on two chapters together for the International Society of Hypnosis, a clinical textbook on the dark side of hypnosis. Fortunately, we were able to complete this project just before his stroke last year, which led to his ultimate demise and the lack of ability to continue to do the vital work that he and I were embarked on update the law regarding undue influence most importantly alan was a do-gooder he had a powerful intellect and he lamented the horrible political situation that we've currently gotten ourselves into i'm attaching links below to the public talk we gave together to the blogs about his social influence model and to the list of his academic work alan leaves a loving wife jamie and his beloved daughter holly and this is a great loss for humankind i just want people to remember him again As a giant man who contributed an incredible amount to our understanding of hypnosis, brainwashing, and mind control, may he rest in peace. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. And then just like Stephen Hassan mentioned this book, The Mind Controllers, I'm going to read, like I said, the introductory chapter and then a little bit on Charles Manson. Sorry, before I do that, I'm going to read his uh, curriculum vitae, his biography. Professor Shefflin's second book, The Mind Manipulators, was published in several countries. Trance on Trial, his third book, received the American Psychiatric Association's 1991 Manfred S. Guttmacher Award as the year's most outstanding publication on forensic psychiatry. His fourth book, Clinical Hypnosis and Memory, Guidelines for Clinicians and Forensic and for Forensic Hypnosis received the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis Arthur Shapiro Award for Book of the Year in 1995. Professor Schefflin's fifth book, Memory, Trauma, Treatment, and the Law received the American Psychiatric Association's 1999 Manfred S. Guttmacher Award, the Arthur Shapiro Award from the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis and the International Society for the Study of Dissociations 1998 Distinguished Merit Award. Law and Mental Disorder, his sixth book, was published in 1998. He has also authored more than 50 articles, book chapters, and book reviews on psychological, psychiatric, and legal issues. Professor Shefflin has provided testimony to Congress and the California legislature. He is judicially recognized in federal and state courts as an expert on legal ethics, memory, suggestion and suggestibility, hypnosis, and mind and behavior control has delivered more than 100 invited addresses and workshops at all the major American professional hypnosis organizations. At many international hypnosis organizations at the American Psychiatric Association, the American Ortho Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, the American Family Foundation, and other professional mental health and legal organizations. In 1999, Professor Shefflin was voted a fellow of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. He is an advisory editor of the Cultic Studies Journal, an advisory science editor of the Journal of American Society of Clinical Hypnosis, and has been guest co-editor of the Journal of Psychiatry and Law. He is currently the chair-elect of the Association of American Law School Section on Law and Mental Disabilities. So that's his CV from Santa Clara University. And then, like I said, I will read from the mind. Manipulators, published with Edward M. Opton. So the authors are Alan W. Sheflin, S E H E F L I N, and Edward M. Optin, Opton, O P T O N. The mind manipulators. Chapter one: Assaulting the mind. The rise of mind manipulation. <clears throat> the ultimate bastion of freedom is biological. Each of our stubbornly separate brains resides in its individual case of bony armor. Law, religion, morality, and conscience are all more or less ephemeral, but nature's marvelous fortress, the skull, has always stood as an impenetrable barrier to those who would impose their wills totally upon others. As long as a man's thoughts remain his private possession, domination ends at the scalp. History, to be sure, is largely the record of men's efforts, often considerably successful, to impose their wills on one another. But these attempts to expunge individuality and impose totalitarianism have always carried within them the seeds of self-destruction. Repression produces rebellion. Tyranny generates revolution. When autocracy strains to hold down the lid on individuality, it necessarily exhausts its energies and halts the processes of social evolution, which alone could ensure its long-term survival. But what if man could manipulate man directly? What if he could eliminate the expense of prisons and police? find substitutes for censorship and propaganda, and put away the paralyzing instruments of fear which have served as his main technologies for exercising dominion over his fellows? What if men could enter one another's brain to impose their will directly? Mind manipulation research has been conducted for decades by hundreds of scientists in dozens of countries on thousands of people hundreds of thousands of times. Behavior modification, a major school of psychological thought, dominates many university psychology departments. Psychosurgery has been endorsed by a national commission established to investigate its dangers. Micro-miniature electronic circuits are making control of the mind through direct brain stimulation a real possibility. Drugs to control moods and emotions have become the largest and most profitable part of the pharmaceutical industry. The techniques of brainwashing appear to have been revived with great success by numerous religious sects. Computer technology now makes possible monitoring and therefore control of intimate aspects of behavior by health, welfare, police, and other government agencies as well by, as well by private employers, insurance company, and credit bureaus. Zones of privacy have shrunk very greatly in recent years as more and more people have become dependent on computerized government and computerized business for almost everything from birth records to death benefits. And the CIA, the United States Army and other branches of government, for 25 years, have applied to unwitting American citizens and others the fruits of centuries of tinkering with alteration of the mind. Lobotomy, psychosurgery, electrical stimulation of the brain, castration, brainwashing, hypnosis, behavior modification. The list of techniques for getting control of the mind of another is quite substantial. Left unchecked, the list will continue to expand, and the techniques already on it, which will reach a higher degree of efficiency. It is against that possibility that we have written this book. My manipulation is no longer the exclusive domain of imaginative science fiction writers, no longer the exceptional weapon to be used only on the enemy. My manipulation is present fact, and it affects all of our lives. In the words of Aldous Huxley, quote, We have had religious revolutions. We have had political, industrial, economic, and nationalistic revolutions. All of them, as our descendants will discover, were but ripples in an ocean of conservatism trivial by con- comparison with the psychological revolution toward which we are so rapidly moving. That will really be a revolution. When it is over, the human race will give no further trouble, unquote. Huxley did not overstate the case. For centuries, men have realized the control of minds is more important than the control of bodies. It was Machiavelli who observed that while a kingdom might be captured by force of arms, it could be held only by the mental bonds of loyalty. But until recently, there were only three basic modes of mind control that were available. Persuasion, torture, and terrorism. All had serious shortcomings. Persuasion was expensive and slow. Often it did not work, especially when applied to those who most needed it, political opponents. Torture and terrorism were swifter and surer, but too often they left little that was useful. The means destroyed the end. Moreover, torture and terrorism are inherently one-person-at-a-time procedures and their brutality tends to create several new enemies for each one neutralized. New techniques were needed, methods more selective than terrorism, less brutal than torture, and more effective than persuasion. Perhaps the most nearly successful pre-modern techniques of mass mind control were those used in religious revivals. British psychiatrist William Sargent studied religious conversion after noticing parallels between it and the so-called brainwashing of captured soldiers during the Korean War, evangelist Sargent found, had intuitively grasped the principles whereby the mind is softened for indoctrination. In, ba- in the battle for the mind, he details the careful preparation that goes into this spontaneous religious conversion session. Those who intend, attend evangelical revivals, however, are a rather special, self-selected group. And even so, the number of those who backslide into a con- conventionally sinful life is large. Backsliding was also the rule for brainwashed prisoners of war. When they returned home, almost all became loyal citizens. Nevertheless, the more primitive forms of mass mind control are enormously effective in their fashion. The witch witch doctors claim to hex an enemy is no idle boast. In communities which believe in voodoo, it is a powerful tool for social control. Those few who transgress discover that the effectiveness of voodoo is virtually guaranteed by the strong community sentiment that it cannot fail. Voodoo works when people believe it is invincible. The job of the witch doctor is not so much to apply voodoo as to sustain the tribal belief in its invincibility. As with nuclear weapons, the fear that it will be used is often as effective as its actual use. Evangelical religion and voodoo manipulate the minds of masses of people, but not so nearly so effectively today as in the past. For several centuries, the Western world has been drifting toward quite different methods of mind control. These new methods employ scientific technology. For their acceptance, they rely on the idea that people and their minds are components of a mechanical clockwork universe. In this book, we shall present evidence that mind manipulation technologies endanger democracy. Mind manipulation is a growing science developing increasingly sophisticated techniques as it surges for, toward full maturity. Mind manipulation techniques are not merely the pet projects of white-coated, laboratory-housed, contract-funded intellectual recluses who fiddle with dials, pull levers, push buttons, and throw switches. The techniques were developed for use on people, and they are tested on people. In market terms, there is a supply of persons to serve as candidates for mind control and a demand for techniques that will control them. But even the reality of extensive mind manipulation research would trouble us less if it were not for parallel cultural developments that encourage acceptance of mind control technologies. Some social planners have realized that people may be conditioned over time passively to accept increasing restrictions on their liberty. Indeed, some influential thinkers, most notably Harvard psychologist B.F. Skinner, are outspoken in their belief that society should be restructured to eliminate the classical conceptions of freedom and dignity. But more important than the conscious designs of social planners is the unplanned drift of our modern industrial state. We think it likely that that current mind control techniques both reflect and advance an evolutionary development toward a mechanized culture. As a byproduct of increasing automation and industrialization, people are coming to resemble the automatic machines which they use to sustain their lives. Previous changes in identity and self-concept have, for the most part, been byproducts of industrialization. Today, though, science may be about to do directly what hitherto it did only indirectly. Psychosurgery, electrical stimulation of the brain, behavior modification, brainwashing, and other techniques attempt to alter directly the individual to suit his or her parents, school, hospital, or government the rise of mind manipulation. It would be false to present modern forms of technological behavior control as unprecedented abrogations of a former state of untrammeled freedom. Man in a state of nature is still a social animal, so his freedom has always been constrained. Today, technology is beginning to provide the social controls that formerly resided in the invisible bonds of community. Tribal societies needed few formal laws or none at all each member knew his his or her place customs mores and shared understandings fixed social position more firmly than any law a tribe that could impose the ultimate sanction of exile did not need gadgets to keep its members in line even in societies far more heterogeneous than the tribe the threat or shame of shame or ridicule was a pow- powerful force of conformity The American colonists exposed transgressors in the stocks, not because such punishment was mild, but because it was severe. In pre-industrial societies, the most extreme punishment short of death was not prison, but banishment or declaration that the felon was an outlaw, a person not entitled to the protection of the laws. Such a person was stripped not only of social status, but also of personal identity. With the rise of commerce and then industry, more intricate forms of social organization developed severely straining and often destroying the more informal communal controls on behavior. Allegiance to family and church waned with the growth of cities and industry. In the 17th century, if a man were asked, who are you? He might answer, I'm Smith, a cooper of Charlestown. And he would feel accountable to all, to his family, his fellow craftsmen and his community. But the 19th or 20th century resident of Charlestown would more likely answer, I'm Jim Smith. What is it to you? With the growth of cities became the possibility of escaping the bonds of family, of the per parish church, and of the social niche into which one was born. But with the development of modern society, there also appeared substitutes for the lost social bonds, laws, regulations, government bureaus, and police. One of the first really modern control systems was called the Industrial Psychology Movement by its creator and chief prophet, Frederick Taylor. Surveying the late 19th century industrial scene, Taylor observed a standoff between the owners of industry who wanted their workmen to put out a maximum effort and the workers who desired to work no faster than was comfortable. Taylor, the first efficiency expert, set out to help management get maximum production. The essence of Taylor's technique was to alienate workers from one another by taking for them control over their work. Taylor urged the division of jobs into minute components so that the worker would be used only for muscle. The organization of work and with it the setting of the work pace was to be entirely controlled by executives. Taylor showed that management could not extract maximum effort until it gained maximum control, and it could not get maximum control until it broke up the interdependent work gang into identical, interchangeable, and mechanical jobs. In the name of efficiency, Taylor raised alienation from a byproduct Of industrialization to a master tool of control in the hands of profit oriented management. Taylor's name is in eclipse today. His ingenious espousal of unrestrained exploitation has long since been replaced with more humanistic theories of personnel management. But Taylor's basic principles have become so thoroughly embedded in managerial thinking that few, except of those who have fled the narrow niches, of communes, crafts, and professions can imagine that work was once organized in a very different way. Taylor and his followers were content to control behavior during working hours. It remained for thinkers of a more scholarly bent to devise comprehensive plans for manipulation of behavior and thought. The most ambitious, ambitious of such ideas have developed from Pavlov's and Watson's observations of domesticated animals. Ivan Pavlov, the great Russian physiologist, was a pioneer in studies of the conditioned reflex, a phenomenon he first encountered as a source of error in his experiments on the digestive secretions of dogs. Pavlov's problem was that he could not measure the normal rate of saliva production, for the rate increased whenever attendants who also fed the dogs entered the laboratory to make measurements. In his famous experiments with the bell, Pavlov showed that the salivation was not a response to the attendant as such, but to the association between the attendant and food. A bell or an attendant or any other stimulus that was consistently associated with feeding would in time produce the salivation reflex. Others before Pavlov may have noticed that reflexes can be conditioned, but it was Pavlov's genius to treat this fact not merely as an annoying source of error in his experiments, but as a phenomenon of interest in itself something to be created, extinguished, generalized, and analyzed. Could people be made to respond as automatically to government directives as a dog's salivary glands respond to a bell? Pavlov was never much interested in such questions, but some of his self-appointed disciples were. As events have turned out, direct applications of Pavlovian conditioning to people are few. We shall consider them in connection with aversive conditioning. But the possibility of such controls has worried and fascinated people since the, since the 1920s. At the same time that the English-speaking world was learning of Pavlov's work, an American psychologist was using the word conditioning for a quite different method of manipulating behavior. Dr. John Watson, working at first with the animals and then with human babies, coined the word behaviorism to describe a new principle which he believed could explain and control all behavior. The new principle was the idea that behavior is controlled by its consequences. Rats or infants or voters will tend to repeat behavior which has pleasant consequences and to avoid repeating behavior that has produced unpleasant consequences. On close analysis, but Watson was not one for close analysis, this new principle turns out to be much like a very old philosophy, hedonism. As a philosophy, hedonism has its points, but by the 20th century, it was clear that there was more to life than the search for pleasure and the avoidance of pain. As a brand new product of the scientific laboratory, however, behaviorism became immensely popular in the 1920s, and Watson's books of advice on controlling children were bestsellers. Watson confined himself to the control of individuals He never achieved the popularity and influence of his intellectual heir, Dr. B.F. Skinner. Under the name Behavior Modification, Skinner has proposed extension of behaviorist principles to the control of entire populations. These proposals have received, as one might expect, a mixed reception, a great deal of enthusiasm from actual and potential controllers of others' behavior, and a great deal of antagonism from those who can reasonably anticipate having their behavior Controlled. The possibility that the most drastic kinds of mind manipulation might be feasible remained just that, a possibility in the West. But in 1936 to 1938, the Soviet Union Union provided a demonstration that caused astonishment and consternation around the world. In the late 1930s, Joseph Stalin determined to purge the Communist Party of his no doubt numerous real enemies and of his very greatly more numerous potential and imaginary enemies. His massacre of several million people culminated in the 1936-1938 with a spectacular series of public trials, now commonly known as the Moscow Show Trials. A long parade of high-level Bolshevik leaders confessed to such a long litany of crimes and conspiracies that it was obvious the offenses were fictitious, though the death sentences were quite real. It was not surprising that these tough revolutionaries, Many of them veterans of the anti-sarist underground would confess to crimes they could not possibly have committed. But what was bizarre and what seemed without precedent, even in nations where torture was routine, was that the condemned men seemed to cooperate so wholeheartedly in their transmutation from revolutionary leaders to non-persons. They not only confessed, they also appeared to embrace the secret police's view of themselves as despicable vermin, as anti persons whom the Soviet Union should be well rid of. As Robert Conquest states in his definitive book on the show trials, quote, it was not only confession which was so strange, it was repentance. The acceptance of the prosecution's view that the acts confessed to were appalling crimes. The complete acceptance of the opinion of their accusers was the real and crowning implausibility of the whole affair, unquote. None of the Bolsheviks on trial exhibited signs of physical torture, had the Soviets developed some awesome new method for controlling the mind? Two of the most troubling and incisive books on the 1940s tried to answer this question. Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon and George Orwell's 1984. At the end of 1984, when Winston Smith is arrested, his interrogator infor- informs him of what to expect. Quote, we make the brain perfect before we blow it up. No one whom we bring to this place ever stands out against us everyone is washed clean. There's nothing left in them except sorrow for what they have done and love of the party. It is touching to see how they love the party. They beg to be shot quickly so that they can die while their minds are still clean, Orwell's book was published in 1949, a decade after the Moscow show trials. The year 1984 was still 35 years in the future, but only three years later, British and American prisoners of war in Korea confessed falsely that they had taken part in germ warfare experiments. The next year, when Britons and Americans were shocked by reports that many prisoners of war had collaborated with the Koreans and Chinese, Edward Hunter coined a word for forcible ideological conversion, brainwashing. Richard Condon took the step idea a step further a few years later in his novel, The Manchurian Candidate, in which a captured American soldier was programmed to be a political assassination assassin for the communists. This robot-like obedience was the, in the novel was science fiction, but scientific fact had caught up with fiction many times before. Indeed, as we shall later point out, the CIA had already been striving to construct a real Manchurian candidate for more than five years. Meanwhile, public debate over the reality of brainwashing was sharpened by reports that psychologists and advertising executives had joined forces to probe the inner mind of the consumer. The technique was called motivational research, and it soon was the object of an immensely popular expose, Vance Packard's The Hidden Persuaders. According to Packard, Madison Avenue had begun to bypass the conscious mind by scientifically probing the consumer's unconscious and unacknowledged motivations. Consumers were, of course, long since resigned to suggestions that the right cigarette underarm deodorant or lipstick would make them virile wealthy popular and young but to know that one's susceptibility to these sub rosa appeals was being precisely calculated that one's subconscious motives neatly laid out in crafts and tables were the grist of a corporation sales campaign upset a good many people nor did it help the image of the advertising industry when one of its well-known executives announced in september 1957 that he had developed a way to bypass consumers' conscious defenses altogether. Subliminal messages flashed so briefly on the television or movie screen that they could not be seen consciously would impact directly or the, on the subconscious, or so it was claimed. The fact that both motivational research and subliminal advertising turned out to be more nearly hot air than hot news does not affect the main lesson to be learned from those episodes. When and if there was a way to manipulate minds for commercial purposes, society will not lack for people and organizations prepared to use it. Psychologists, dictators, and advertisers have not been alone in their efforts to bring the 20th century mind under tighter control. In the same decade that Stalin decided to re-educate then liquidate his most troublesome critics, a Portuguese neurologist invented a surgical operation to quiet his most troublesome patients. Dr. Egas Moniz's invention, the lobotomy, was enthusiastically promoted by the American psychiatrist Walter Freeman. Within 10 years it became an immensely popular treatment for severe mental illness in Great Britain and the United States. Worldwide about 100,000 people were subjected to this partial amputation of the brain before tranquilizing drugs introduced in 1952 made it possible to control troublesome patients as effectively. Without the knife. The tranquilizers were the first fruits of a veritable chemical cornucopia of mind altering drugs developed in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. Pharmaceutical companies soon produced drugs for every mood pills to make you happy, pills to make you quiet, pills to make you hallucinate, pills to make you vegetate. Pharmacology became and remains a potent technology through which men hope to gain control over other men's minds. The advent of powerful behavior control drugs cut deeply into the medical practice practice of lobotomists. And in response, the psychosurgeons have invented several dozen new operations. Each of the new psychosurgical operations of the 1960s and 1970s is said by its inventor to be as effective as the lobotomy, but less destructive. Patients are said to be relieved of their misery, their inclination to use self-prescribed drugs, and their kinky sexual preferences. Without the inconvenient side effects of the lobotomy, such as vegetabilization, epileptic convulsions, and sometimes death. While surgeons developed brain operations to control people who were troublesome to themselves or to others, a cadre of talented academic scientists and engineers were making great strides on a more sophisticated method of direct mind control. Taking advantage of the recent micro miniaturization of electronics, Dr. Jose Delgado and his colleagues began to implant radio transmitter receivers in the brain in order to control their patients from a distance. So as far as we know, electrical stimulation of the brain, ESB, has been used primarily in attempts to relieve people of overwhelming personal problems, such as severe pain, but serious proposals have been made to apply the technique to social problems, criminality, for example. Dr. Delgado has left Yale University to to pursue his research in Spain, but planning for electronic control of criminals has continued. Some criminologists believe that by using the vast communications network of the telephone companies, direct control is as possible as it is desirable. The most recent development in in coercive mind manipulation has been the revival of brainwashing techniques and their apparent extension into the civilian arena. Religious cults that exact a total commitment and total obedience program their followers, according to many parents, journalists, and politicians. Others argue that these cults merely provide an outlet for youthful idealism and a refuge from youthful alienation. The Symbionese Liberation Army brainwashed Patty Hearst, some experts testified. Others responded that her captors merely persuaded her to join them. Charles Manson used exotic techniques of mind control on his family of sexually promiscuous young women, according to many news accounts. Others replied that his power was charismatic, not coercive. What is most significant about the new allegations of brainwashing is the involvement of non-professionals. Brainwashing in the 1970s is said to affect people far from the hostile arena of international warfare and propaganda. Brainwashing is claimed to have been used by our neighbors on our neighbors. It presumably could be used next on ourselves. The last important development in mind manipulation is perhaps the most shocking and frightening of all. Until 1975, it received no public attention because it was unknown. We refer to the 25-year program of mind and behavior control experimentation carried out primarily by the CIA on unwitting persons it selected as guinea pigs. The CIA's covert activities were the most extensive mind manipulation program in history. The record of those events shows that my manipulation technology threatens us all. If Niccolò Machiavelli could visit his 20th century descendants, he surely would be impressed by recent progress. The art of practical government upon which the celebrated Florentine advised his hypothetical prince has been much magnified by science. Nowhere has political technology achieved more success than in mind manipulation, which is the art become science at the center of Machiavelli's theory of dictatorial power. Yet Machiavelli would find today's politics more familiar than strange. He knew the ways of princes, tyrants, demagogues, generals, and governors, of coups, assassinations, cabals, conspiracies, intrigues, and informers, of leaders and led, of statesmen and couriers, of the political uses of fear, greed, and flattery, of temporary alliances and false promises. He knew the advantages of loyalty based on faith over alliances found on expediency or mercenary interests. And though he employed a res- more resonant terminology, Machiavelli well understood that princes retain their thrones not by divine right, certainly not by genuine consent, nor by their personal strength or wit, but rather by manipulation of minds. If Machiavelli were among us today, though, he would have to adapt to a radically changed world. It would not be enough to manipulate a handful of nobility or the retinue of couriers and major generals. The fate of today's princes depends on the goodwill of large numbers of people. Mind manipulation today requires methods that work with crowds, with mass markets, with television audiences, as well as staff meetings. In a relatively democratic world, mind manipulation is for everybody. The scope of this book, my manipulation could be conceived with maximum breadth to include virtually every influence that people exert on one another. To the child, who wants to go to the movies rather than learn the multiplication tables. The exercise of parental authority is unfair mental and physical coercion. To the parent, it is simply child rearing. To the young woman who wants to cloister herself in an Eastern religious cult, the attempt to reorient her to Western modes of religious thought is brainwashing. To her desperate parents who have hired professionals to effect this change, the process is deprogramming, designed to restore freedom of thought. To many people, psychosurgery is a brutal form of mind manipulation. To the surgeon who wields the scalpel, it is simply treatment. To the prisoner placed in a token economy form of behavior modification program, the fundamentals of life, food, shelter, access to other people, become bludgeons to forcibly change his personality. Nonsense, replied the psychologist who administer such systems. We are merely providing a way for the inmate to learn to control himself so we can shape his own future rather than be shaped by it. Whether or not an event is mind manipulation depends very much on who is being asked. Those who do give different answers to those who are done to. In our view, mind manipulation techniques should be viewed as covering a spectrum. At the mild end of the scale are persuasion, propaganda, education, advertising, and child rearing. At the opposite end of the scale are torture, terror, and brainwashing, events which unfortunately still fill today's headlines. What unifies this spectrum from the barely effective to the irresistible is the attempt of one person to influence another. Some such attempts meet with social approval, like parental advice, compulsory schooling, and the free practice of religion. Other forms of obtaining influence are socially scorned, such as physical brutality, duress, intimidation, and brainwashing. Precisely where on the scale of permissible persuasion ends and unacceptable mind control begins is an unanswerable question, for the boundary line shifts with every social change. In this book, we deal with the heavy end of the spectrum. We adopt a narrow view of mind manipulation, choosing to concentrate on situations where influence is not mutual and free, but coercive in one way, where the attempt to control the thoughts and conduct of another is aided by some technological expertise. We believe scientific mind control is a distinct threat to the future. The invention of lo- the longbow, then the rifle and machine gun, then nuclear bombs changed forever the conduct of war. The invention of agriculture and of machines, of the telephone and the automobile, changed forever the way people live, think, and act, as well as the values they hold dear. So, too, the technology of mind manipulation portends extensive changes for which our contemporary society society is definitely not prepared and which most of its members would not desire. Our choice of the coercive end of the scale eliminates from our discussion mind manipulation programs, however powerful that people voluntarily choose to encounter. The wide range of self-manipulation methods advertised to make people's lives happier and more fulfilling from EST to ESP are outside the scope of this book. We concentrate on what is done to people against their will rather than on what people suggest subject themselves to voluntarily. Our focus is on the threats to freedom of the mind rather than on its exercise. Even within the narrow contours we have chosen to emphasize, it has not been possible to present the full scope of the current mind manipulation technologies. Not included here, for example, are discussions of drugs or behavior modification. Their absence from these pages does not mean we think they are unimportant. Quite the contrary. However, we hope to perform a more useful service by discussing techniques that have received far less attention. The fact that no one book can cover the full panoply of mind manipulation technologies suggests just how serious a threat those technologies have become. The Incredible Shrieking Man. It has been observed that science has dealt three great body blows to man's belief in himself as the center of all things. In the 15th century, Copernicus demonstrated that the Earth, man's planet, is not the center of the universe, but only one satellite of the sun, itself a minor star in an undistinguished corner of the cosmos. In the 19th century, Darwin's theory of evolution shattered the myth that man was the product of divine inspiration, shaped after the shaper in his own image evolutionary theory depicts man, depicts man as an intermediate organism in a process which began with a single cell in the primordial swamp and which continues in a direction known to no one it is difficult for post-darwinian man to claim himself the pinnacle of creation when the geological record suggests that homo sapiens is but a recent and perhaps transient interloper upon the biological scene It remained for Freud early in this century to deliver the heaviest blow to men's egocentricity. Freud observed that the rational thinking motivated only a a small part of human behavior. The more important sources of individuality were to be found in the wellsprings of the unconscious mind. The residues of infancy, the irrational and uncivilized id covering itself with the mask of gentility and good manners. Man, Freud found, thinks and acts in ways he cannot fully understand or restrain. Not only does man not control the destiny of the universe, his conscious mind does not even control itself. Today, man stands on the brink of another discovery which may be equally unsettling. His behavior may be manipulated externally as well as driven internally. Would-be manipulators have never been lacking. For example, John Watson, whose ideas fathered modern behavior modification, Boldly asserted, quote, give me a dozen healthy infants well-formed in my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train him to become any type of specialist I might select, doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, and yes, even beggar man and thief, regardless of his talents, pensions, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and race of his ancestors, unquote. This was an empty and harmless boast when Watson made it in 1924. Today, it would have, been, would have to be taken much more seriously. In the same vein as brain researcher Jose Delgado states that the central philosophical question is no longer, what is man? It has now become, what type of man should we construct? Delgado seems to be quite ready to implement Aldous Huxley's Brave New World vision, in which infants were decanted from test tubes at the central hatchery and conditioning center and scientifically endowed with the proper physique and just enough intelligence to fit into a pre-selected niche in the social hierarchy. Is an increase in mind manipulation technology inevitable? There can be little doubt that it has seemed so during the past two decades. Perry London, in his seminal book Behavioral Control, surveys these developments with a heavy heart. Quote: The development of a refined technology of behavior control in modern society is as inevitable as the maintenance of all other technologies is certain. And the nature of the refinements which will make real what has hitherto been mostly a fantasy of the ignorant, control of the mind. As 1984 draws near, it appears that George Orwell's conceits of the technology by which tyranny would impress its will upon men's minds were much too modest. By that time, the means at hand will be more sophisticated and efficient than Orwell ever dreamed, and they will be in at least modest use, as they have already begun to be, not by the will of tyrants, but by the invitation of all of us, for we have been schooled to readiness for all these things and will demand their benign use, regardless of their potential risk. The capacity for control will continuously grow, evolving from benevolence, We do not share London's pessimism. If we did, we would not have written this book man can master his technology if he so chooses it is a specific it is as a specific against the developments which London thinks inevitable that we present here the facts of mind manipulation so that was the intro. let me go find the manson part let's see Charles Manson in August 1969, seven Los Angeles residents were brutally stabbed, beaten, and shot to death by members of the now infamous Charles Manson family. The grisly events were recounted on the witness stand by, among others, Susan Atkins, one of the defendants, and Linda Kasabian, a former, fa- former family member who eventually fled the group and was granted immunity in return for testifying for the prosecution. On the evening of August 9th, 1969, Charles Manson gathered together four of his clan, he told them to get a change of clothing and some weapons. The women, Susan Atkins, Sadie, Patricia Krenwinkel, Katie, and Linda Casabian, were instructed to obey Charles Tex Watson's orders. As they were leaving, Manson said, Leave a sign. You girls know what to write. Something witchy. The four arrived at the residence of movie director Roman Polanski shortly before midnight. Stephen Parent, visiting the caretaker of the Polanski guest Guesthouse, guest house, accidentally intercepted them before they entered the residence. Watson shot him four times and slashed him once. While Linda stood guard outside, the other three entered the house where Sharon Tate, J. Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frykowski were quietly talking and reading in various rooms. The four were herded into the living room. Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant, pleaded with Sadie to let her and her baby live. Sadie replied, look bitch, I don't care if you're going to have a baby. You better be ready. You're going to die. Tate was stabbed 16 times, Sebring 7 times, Folger 28 times, and Frykowski 51 times. Frykowski was also struck over the head 13 times with a blunt object, and Sebring was shot when he lunged for Watson's gun. Sadie wrote pig on the door with a towel dipped in Sharon's blood because Tex told me to go back into the house and write something that will shock the world. When they returned to their home on... the spawn ranch manson asked if they felt any remorse all shook their heads on the next night manson went with the group he was upset about the messiness of the night before and wanted to show him them how to do it right he chose linda sadie tex katie leslie van houten and steve grogan clem to accompany him manson directed them to the la bianca house arriving there around 2 a.m he entered first tied up the la bianca's then returned to the car According to Susan, he said something to the effect that last night, Tex let the people know they were going to be killed, which caused panic. And Charlie said that he reassured the people with smiles in a very quiet manner that they were not going to be harmed. So Tex, Leslie, and Katie got out of the car. Sadie recalls Manson telling them that they were to paint a picture more gruesome than anybody had ever even seen. Leslie and Katie untied, untied Rosemary LaBianca and placed her face down on the bed. They paced, placed a pillowcase over her head and tied her neck with a lamp cord. Then they stabbed her to death with Tex, assisting them after he had done away with Leno Bianca, Leno was stabbed eight times. Rosemary was stabbed 41 times. After they were dead, Tex scratched the word war on Leno's cheek. Katie then took a carving fork and punctured both bodies with it, leaving it in Leno's abdomen. A pillowcase was lo- placed over Leno's head. And they then wrote, Death to Pigs, Helter Skelter, and Rise on the Walls with Leno's Blood. The three then took a shower, consumed some of the watermelon and chocolate milk they found in the kitchen, and hitchhiked home, arriving at about dawn. While their comrades were brutally murdering innocent people, Manson, Clem, Sadie, and Linda drove the streets of Los Angeles. They stopped at a Denny's restaurant, drank milkshakes, and walked along a beach. Linda was later to say, it was sort of nice, you know, we were just talking, I gave him some peanuts, and he just sort of made me forget about everything, made me feel good. On their way home, Manson told Linda to drive to the apartment of an actor she had recently met while hitchhiking. He gave her a pocket knife and told her to knock on the door, enter, and slit his throat. Linda says that she told Charlie, I'm not you, Charlie, I can't kill anybody. She led Clem and Sadie to the apartment, but deliberately knocked on the wrong door. When a man answered, she said she had had the wrong apartment. The three of them then left the building, but not before Sadie, ever the animal, defecated on the landing. As bizarre as the events, these events appeared initially, they later became even more unfathomable. By the time the story was complete, the public viewed Manson as a devil-worshipping madman who held miraculous power over young women and could order them to do his bidding, even murdering innocent and to them unknown persons. This Svengali-like demonic power seemingly robbed those who came into contact with Manson of their own free will and independence of mind. As prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi was later to remark about Manson's female followers, quote, there was a little girl quality to them, as if they hadn't aged, but had been retarded at a certain stage in their childhood. Each was, in her own way, a pretty girl. But there was a sameness about them that was much stronger than their individuality. Same expression, same pattern responses, same tone of voice, same lack of distinct personality. The realization came with a shock. They reminded me less of human beings than of Barbie dolls, It was as if they had been brainwashed, had lost control over their own minds, and had become Manson's puppets. The mind control theory found immediate favor, and became a standard explanation for events that seemed otherwise beyond rational comprehension. Of course, Manson had them under some kind of spell. Why else would they do those awful things? Did Manson brainwash these young women? Did he have them under some strange, irresistible, and frightening kind of mind control? Yes, said Dr. Joel Fort, and he so testified as a defense witness for Leslie Van Houten. According to Fort, who several years later would state at the trial of Patty Hearst, that the idea of her having been brainwashed was absurd. The pressure Van Houten underwent was used, in effect, to brainwash or produce a group, a new form of thinking, a new pattern of behavior for the girls living in that group with Mr. Manson. Fort believed that Manson's influence was so great that on the women that they should not be held fully responsible for their conduct. He reiterated this co- conclusion on the witness stand in the Patty Hearst case. The women certainly acted if they had been brainwashed. Manson's domination over them appeared total. As described at a California Court of Appeals, quote, Without a doubt, Manson was the leader of the family. The scope of his influence ranged from the most simple to the most complex of matters. He decided where the family would stay, where they would sleep, what clothing they would have, and when they would wear it. When they would take their evening meal and they would mo- when they would move. It was understood that membership in the family required giving up everything to Manson and never disobeying him. His followers, including the co-appellants, were compliant. They regarded him as infallible and believed that he was a God man or Christ. Family member Danny DiCarlo testified that each co-appellant said that Charlie sees all and knows all. Cassabian was told by the others, we never question Charlie. We know what he is doing is right. The Manson woman kept a continuous vigil on the courthouse steps during the trial, preaching his philosophy to all who would listen. When Manson carved an X on his forehead early in the trial, the three co-defendants, as well as those keeping the vigil, did the same. When Manson made outbursts in court, the three co-defendants stood up in unison and parroted him. During the penalty phase of the trial, the women's lawyers had decided against them testifying, and the women vehemently disagreed. It was revealed in the judge's chambers that they wanted to testify that they had planned and committed the murders completely independently of Charlie. And of course, they had murdered innocent people for him. Even beyond that, they had lost the ability to feel compassion for the value of human life, except as directed by Manson. They adopted Manson's philosophy of death completely. Here are extracts from their testimony at the penalty phase of the trial. Quote, Sadie, did you have any feeling toward them at all? Answer, I don't know any of them. How could I have felt any emotion without knowing them? Just one of those things, seven dead bodies. Answer, no big thing. What did you feel after you stabbed her? Answer, nothing. I mean, like what is there to describe? It was just there and it was like it was right. Did it bother you when she screamed for her life? Answer, no. Do you feel sorrowful about it? Sorry, unhappy? Answer, sorry is only a five-letter word. It can't bring back anything. Do you think about it from time to time? Answer only when I'm in the courtroom. What process could possibly have produced such dedicated zombies? They must, so the argument went, have been brainwashed. The brainwashing theory does not satisfy us. In our opinion, there is a far more direct explanation for those tragic events. Our concern will be with presenting that explanation. But more importantly, we will also address ourselves to the question of why the brainwashing theory received such a warm reception before we can proceed with explanations and answers however we must present the facts who is charles manson charles mills manson was born into a 16 to a 16 year old prostitute who did not know the identity of his father she was sent to prison when he was 4 years old and charlie lived with different relatives for the next 4 years They were not very willing to care for him, and he received little love or attention. A neighbor remembers him being very quiet, keeping to himself most of the time and giving the impression of being scared. Upon release, Charlie's mother continued to live her life as she always had, with virtually no regard for the boy. She drank heavily, ran with a fast crowd, and was prone to leaving Charlie for weeks at a time with whomever would keep him. And when no one would keep him, she simply took him wherever she went. Charlie was continually finding himself with short-lived uncles in inside dingy apartments and rooming houses. I was always waiting in a room somewhere for someone to return, he recalls. He had a few friends, but they were straggly street children. He later remarked there was nothing but emptiness and violence. Charlie took to stealing, was first caught and sent to reform school when he was nine years old. From that time until his release from penitentiary in 1967, at the age of 32, he spent all but a few years of his life in corrective institutions. It is not surprising that Manson initially met with a great deal of violence in these institutions, even as early as reform school. As he recalls, any new guy that came in there, right away they come up to him. The prisoners and the bulls, they tried to put fear in you. That was their things, to put fear in you. And if you're scared at all and show it, let them take what you've got. The others are there beating on you. You had to be a tough guy. They had to know how tough you were. Manson learned how to act tough, but he also learned something else, that the best way to get along was to be or appear to be that everybody else wanted you to be. He learned how to play the game. He said the things his caseworker wanted to hear, did just enough work to get along, and humored the other violence-prone prisoners by sitting for hours, listening to their life stories, not even attempting to talk about himself. Institutional life was not so bad for him, at least not when compared to the empty shell of the life he had known before. Some guys like Charlie are institutionalized, says an ex-convict friend. He was at home in prison. He joined all the prison groups. He had the run of the place. What is not surprising that he began to view this life as far preferable to what small snatches of the outside world he had already experienced. He was released many times during his formative years. He had always managed to commit some crime usually a federal offense, fairly quickly as to get back in. An old friend recalls, Charlie believed that what was out in the outside world was getting grayer, meaner, and colder than anything we had. The process of establishing some personal security in these institutions required utilizing methods that would even further erode his own sense of identity. Decisions were made for him every minute of every day, as they are for all institutional inmates. He could not order or control his own life. Any tiny sense of self he might otherwise have developed was thwarted by his own role playing as he became literally what anybody at any given moment wanted him to be. There had never been a time or place where he was able to sort out himself and his feelings. He later often remarked, I am only a reflection. When Charlie was on, released on parole in 1967, he begged the authorities to allow him to remain in prison. They were ready to let me out, and I said, no, I can't go out there. I can't, and I'm not able to adjust to their world. I'd be a stranger. But they said it was time. I had to go outside, but I wanted no part in the world outside. After I got out, I was frightened. I was being frightened in a funny way. I didn't know where to go. I was 32 on the streets again, and I didn't know anything. I didn't even know anything about dope or LSD. I didn't want to leave jail, but they insisted I go, and they gave me, I think it was $35 and I had a suitcase filled with old, used clothes. Charlie spent some time just riding on the buses, going to wherever they would take him. One day they took him to Haight-Ashbury. A whole new culture had formed while he was in jail. In 1967 was the year of flower children. They loved peace and they loved everyone, and they were quite willing to love Charlie just because he played nice songs on his guitar and told interesting stories. But most incredibly, they asked for nothing in return for their love. The effect upon a man who had never known any world other than the one where nothing was free and everything cost more than you had was incredible. Quote, I started playing my music and those on the street, they liked it and they had smiles that were real and they would put their arms around me and anything I needed was there in front of me. The whole thing just grabbed me up and sent me spinning. We sat in the park and smoked grass together and just felt living inside of us. We sang and made music and were alive in what we were. Okay, that's where I'll stop. That's a little bit of the Charles Manson. Again, that was reading from the intro about the book, The Mind of Manipulators. The subtitle is a nonfiction account by Alan W. Shefflin and Edward M. Opton Jr. And a very worthwhile read. I'll try to follow up on the on the Charles Manson stuff in a part two episode. Thank you very much for listening.